There are things about church and Christian teaching and tradition that I suspect sometimes makes us a little nervous. You may have felt a little bit nervous, a little out of sync this morning because we've changed the order of worship around a little bit. And part of that's because we're having baptism this morning and uh, just to make things a little different. But when things change like that, it just makes us a little uncomfortable. I would guess that some of you might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable about me walking so close to this water here this morning as well. And I'm actually a little bit uncomfortable about that, so I'll probably be hanging over this way a little bit as we talk. There are things about church teaching that makes us uncomfortable. I I don't really like talking or thinking about hell. I'd much rather that we just avoided that subject and act like it didn't exist. But of course, if you read the scriptures, you can't get away from the reality of that. But sometimes the things that make us nervous are not things we're trying to avoid, but they're actually things that we're trying to embrace. We're just uncomfortable about the way they may be presented. One of the, one of the hymns that I love is, is, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. And, and it is a, a hymn that talks about the width and the breadth and the depth of God's love and grace and mercy to people. But the fourth verse of that hymn says... If our love were but more simple, we would take him at his word, and our lives would be all sunshine in the sweetness of our Lord. Now, when we sing that, we get a little bit nervous about that because it implies that if you love God, life will be sunshine. There will be no problems. You've eliminated pain and hardship and struggle and, and all the things that, quite frankly, are real life. And so we don't sing that hymn a lot anymore unless we put a disclaimer of some kind in the bulletin about it. It makes us nervous. Some of the teachings of Scripture make us nervous. God says to Joshua in the first chapter, he's trying to to get Joshua psyched up to, to lead Israel after Moses. And he says, if you do what I tell you, you will be prosperous and successful. And people have taken that scripture and made a formula out of it. You obey God, you've got prosperity and success. And we get uncomfortable with that. But even Jesus, you know, he says to his disciples, you ask, you receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, door will be opened to you. And we make prayer into a formula. Jesus himself, he says, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. And we get uncomfortable about those passages because we need them in the context. And we, we, want to, we want people to understand that it's not exactly that simple. I think Psalm 128 is another one of those passages that makes us a little bit uncomfortable about how it presents the Christian, how it presents our faith and as followers of God and for, for the, as the psalm is written to the Jews. There is a sense, and listen to this again. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You'll eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. And there is, when we read that, we find our mind automatically wants to make a formula out of that. Do what's right, you get blessed. Do what's right, life is good and easy. And we shy away from that. 
But the reality is, there is a correlation between living the way we're supposed to and the spiritual status of our family and our life. There is a correlation between those two things. Now, it's not a formula. You know, formulas are precise. If you add this to this, you'll get this. And every time you do it, that'll be the result. This is a correlation. And correlations are about tendencies. And the truth is, there is a correlation between living the way we are called to live and the spiritual condition of our families and our lives. Why is that? Well, because children tend to, to follow things, the ways in which life is modeled for them. Children tend to think that, that what their parents do is right. Children tend, tend to do what they see lived out in front of them. And we all, we all have experienced that. One of the things that Cindy and I, when we counsel couples in premarital counseling, is we we woven throughout a lot of the discussions is the sense of the the couple's idea of what's normal. And what we you know almost always find is that everybody has a different opinion of what's normal. What you grew up with is what's normal. And one of the ways that we talk about that is is about how you celebrate holidays. For instance, Christmas. Some families uh, put up a tree the day after Thanksgiving. Other families put up a tree Christmas Eve. Some families open gifts Christmas Eve. Other families Christmas Day. Others on Epiphany 12 days later. Some families, when they're opening gifts, sit around the room and you hand one gift to a person and they meticulously open it up and everyone oohs and ahs. If it's clothing, they try it on. If it's some uh, toy or game, they mess around with it for a little bit and you got five or ten minutes of gift. And then you move to the next person to do the same thing and the thing takes a whole day. And then you got other families where they lay the pile of gifts in front of everybody and they say, go, and stuff's flying everywhere. And what I find is that there's no right or wrong to any of those traditions, but it's what you think of as normal. And and as couples come together and they have this idea in their mind of this is how you do Christmas. And And the other person is saying, no, no, this is how you do Christmas. And you have conflict. Because it's, we, we do what's been modeled for us. And what we view as normal is what's been modeled for us. And the psalmist is trying to help us understand that the way we live our lives has a direct correlation on the kind of spiritual condition that's going to be a part of our children and the people we influence. In our families, the places where we work, the church. We're influencing other people by how we live. We're creating a spiritual atmosphere by how we live. There is a direct correlation. Children that grow up in homes that honor God are much more likely to live a life of honoring God. And children that grow up in a home that rejects God and ignores God are much more likely to reject and ignore God. And what makes us nervous is that we tend to see these things as formulas rather than correlations. Because there are always exceptions. There is no perfect formula. And the longer I live, the more I realize the scripture does not give us formulas. The problem with formulas is that then all we have to do is get the formula right and everything is fine. And God's much more interested in relationship than formulas. But there is this correlation. But there are always exceptions. 
There are, there are children that come out of homes that have honored God and reject God. And there are children that come out of homes that have ignored and rejected God and live awesome spiritual lives for God. There are always exceptions. I heard David Siemens say once that the only couple that had a perfect parent still ate the fruit from the tree. And so there is, there are always exceptions, but there is this correlation of truth. When you think about the people you're influencing, your children, your friends, your co-workers, the, the people in this congregation, what we see in them is often a reflection of what they're seeing in us. We watch our children behave in ways, especially as they get older, and, and they behave in ways and, they, and they, they, they choose directions that concern us. Is there anything in us that says, whoa, maybe I need to rethink how I am influencing them? Because what we do as a part of, the, as followers of God, we are, we are revealing to people, whether we like it or not, what does Jesus look like? What's important to God? What is God like? And the psalmist says the atmosphere we want to create is this atmosphere of fearing God. It says people will be blessed. Your family, spiritual condition, the correlation to that is about fearing God. Now fear takes on a, you know, we have a lot of different meanings. Fear can be being scared to death of something or someone. Being frightened. That, you know, you, the hair stands up on the back of your neck and, and your blood pressure begins to rise. You are scared to death. There's that kind of fear. There is the fear of the unknown. The fear, the anxiety and worry that, that creeps into us because we're not sure what that test is going to reveal. We're not sure if we're, we're going to get that job. We're not sure if we do get the job, if we can do it. We're, we're not sure where this relationship is headed. There is, there is that sense of fear that really is anxiety and apprehension. And, and there is healthy fear. You know, we don't always connect fear and good, but there are a lot of things in life that are good because of fear. We connect those together. It's fear that prevents us from running without looking out into a busy interstate. It's fear that, that prompts us to wear a helmet when we ride a bike or a motorcycle. It's fear that, that causes us to stop when the light is red instead of shutting our eyes and just driving through it. Right? I mean, fear does that. It may be fear that, that keeps you from speeding on the highway because you never know who's going to be around the corner when you come to the next turn. Fear can be healthy. And then there is this fear that is really awe. It is respect. It is, it is a positive feeling about someone in such a way that, that whatever they like, you want to like. Whatever they do, you want to do. Whatever is important to them, you want it to be important to you. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. This fear, some translations say respect God. It is doing what God wants. It is having a passion for God. It is putting God at the place of the the most important being in our lives. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's how we live. That's what will bring blessing. That's the correlation. So 
So we think about our, our walk with God. We think about how we live our lives. Do we have that kind of passion for God? When we come to a crossroads in our lives and we know the right thing to do that God wants and the wrong thing to do that he want, doesn't, is there a healthy fear of God and awe, a respect for God that says, I'm going to choose this way because that's what God wants to do? Is there a passion that wells up, up within us that we want what God wants? We want to reflect God every way possible. We want the heart of God to be so ingrained into us that as much as possible, that's what people see. Well, the problem we have with fear and respect and talking in these terms is that we often morph into legalism and rules. And we think if we've just obeyed the right rules, then everything is fine. If, we, if we've just towed the line, then everything is good. And, and that's what happens to, to people through the centuries. Something that people that start out passionate about God soon create rules. And the rules become more important than the passion. We see it over and over and over again. We're not talking about rules. We're talking about a heart desire. It's not just obedience. It's why we obey. You can fake obedience. We, we can all fake obedience. I mean, you know, the, the old story of the little boy that was, was being punished and told to sit in the chair. And he said, no. And his dad said, sit in the chair. He said, no, sit in the chair. No, finally put him in the chair. And the little boy crossed his arm and said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know, we can do that. In fact, we are pretty good at doing that. It's why we obey. It's the passion within us about obedience. And often that comes out most clearly in our relationships and how we treat people. Particularly how we treat people that can't do anything for us. In Leviticus, God says to the people, be careful the way you treat people who are blind and deaf. And he ends that by saying, fear the Lord your God. Later in Leviticus, he says, how you tr- be careful how you treat each other. Fear the Lord your God. Fearing God has a lot to do with how we treat other people. Particularly people that we find difficult to treat well. The hard people in our lives. The people that rub us the wrong way. The people who've hurt us. The people who, are, who we feel are against us. It is so hard. And it's a process most of the time. But is there a passion in our hearts to want to love them? To want to care for them. When we come to verses 5 and 6 in this, in this psalm. The psalmist turns the pronouns around. And he says. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. And may you live to see your children's children. And he turns it around from. This is the correlation to. This is what I want for you. This is a benediction. This is a blessing pronounced upon them. 
And it strikes me that one of the most profound ways to exude this kind of fear and respect for God and the way we treat each other is living with a desire of wanting other people to be blessed by God. And sometimes wanting that is easier than other times. One of the tests of whether we are truly fearing God is, do we ask God to bless other people? And the follow-up question is, do we mean it when we ask it? Sometimes you have to start with just the words. Sometimes all you can say is the words and the heart has to follow. But is there anything in us that, that wants God's blessing on other people, even if we don't feel like we're being blessed at all? This is one of the great tests of of what it means to fear God. That we we are like Christ, self-emptying, self-sacrificing. We're thinking more about others than about ourselves. And we're asking God to bless other people even when we are struggling to really want that. Even when we aren't feeling blessed by God as we would desire. When we fear God, we want that for people. I'll be be a little transparent with you this morning. Sometimes it's hard for me to want God to bless other people, other pastors in their ministry. When it feels like we're not getting that same blessing. It is so easy to feel jealous, envious. And in those moments, I come, you have to come face to face with the reality that if I truly want a passion for God, then somehow that has to get broken. Say, Lord, bless them, whatever happens to us. Pour out the fullness of your blessing on that church and that ministry and that person, no matter what happens to us. And it's hard. It's hard. But it's part of the process of of growing and deepening that sense of passion and fear and respect for God. And the result of that is not just it's a good thing to do. But the psalmist tells us when we engage in that kind of life, we then open ourselves to receive God's blessings. I have this image in my mind of of God chomping at the bit to just pour out blessings on us. But because we're so wrapped up in ourselves, we've closed off our ability to receive them. I forget exactly who it was who said it, but he said, if there can be any disappointments in heaven, the greatest disappointment might be That when we discover all of the ways in which God wanted to bless our lives, but because we were so self-absorbed, we wouldn't let him. We missed it. And we let go. We have this passion for God, and then we experience his blessing. And I find it interesting that the very last phrase of this psalm is, peace be upon Israel. And I'm convinced that one of the nuances that he's wanting to communicate is, when we pray for God to bless each other, you can't help but experience peace. 
I mean, it's just the natural result of letting go. It's the natural result of, of releasing our jealousy and our anger and our hurt and all of that and begin to pray for God to bless other people. There is peace among God's people. We experience individually, we experience it corporately. There is peace. And I think the primary reason why Christians keep fighting with each other inside a particular church and outside of it is because we are so self-absorbed. And if we could just let go, empty ourselves, focus on God, be passionate about Him, we would find that there would be a whole lot less fighting and a whole lot more peace. Because that's God's plan for his people. I really think that the the core of our struggle is that we're not convinced that God truly wants to bless us. I think we tend to have a mindset of we deserve blessing and whenever we don't get it, something's wrong with God. When the reality is it's exactly the opposite. None of us deserve blessing. The miracle is not that sometimes we don't get blessed. The miracle is that we get blessed at all. The, miracle, the miracle, great miracle is that God, despite all that we do to reject him and all the ways in which we are so self-centered, in spite of all of it, God keeps pouring out blessings upon us because he loves to do that. He loves to bring joy to his people. He loves to bring grace to his people. He loves for us to experience the fullness of who he is and who he created us to be as individuals and as a church. The beginning of this psalm, the heading of this psalm, calls it in this translation a song of ascents. It, it really just simply means some of the translations say it's a, it's a psalm for pilgrims going to worship God in Jerusalem. This is a psalm that is intended to help us prepare to worship God. And it's telling us the best preparation for worshiping God, experience the blessing of God, is to let go, to release our lives and to give ourselves fully, passionately to God and his desires for us. But it's not just about worshiping one moment. It's about worshiping a moment that changes our lives. It's about worshiping a moment that leads us to worship for a lifetime. In a few moments, Eli and Claire are going to come and be baptized here. And as I've talked with them and as I've talked with many of you who have been baptized... As important as this moment is, as significant as this moment will be for them, and hopefully as unforgettable as this moment will be, it's not just about this moment. It's about this moment propelling them throughout the rest of their lives. That when they come to those wise in the road, they remember this moment, and they remember their baptismal vows, and they choose the way of God. And the psalmist wants us to understand it's about a life, not just a moment. So as you think about where you are, your fear, respect, quotient with God, 
how it's reflected in your relationships, how it's reflected in your home or your place of work or this church, how it's reflected in in how we treat each other. Is there one thing that you sense God saying to you, let's work on that? Is there one relationship? Is there one attitude? Is there, is there one circumstance that God is saying to you as you've been listening, you're hearing God saying to you, let's work on that. Let me encourage you to say, okay. And find the joy of God changing us and working in us and recreating us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in spite of ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will speak deep into our hearts, our minds, our our souls. You know that one place this morning that you've put your finger on. Give us courage to respond to you in a sense of respect and awe and worship and fear that we might know more and more of your blessings in our life. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.